we are a part of that collection of two white men <laughs> doing podcasts. We're two queer white men. Does that differentiate us at all? Or does I'm, it? I'm, totally helps with the topic. We're talking, we're talking about, about musicals. Yeah, we're talking about musical theater. <laughs> I'm Peter. And I'm Nathan. And yes, musical theater has gospel. And dancing boys. And fancy hats. So join us for the gospel of musical theater wherever you get your podcasts. ES Audio. Welcome to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Nick Curtis, Chief Theatre Critic. I'm Nancy Durrant, Culture Editor. And I'm Nick Clark, Deputy Culture Editor. Coming up on today's show, we'll be reviewing Vanya at the Duke of York's Theatre. This is a new adaptation of Anton Chekhov's Uncle Vanya by Simon Stevens, directed by Sam Yates. But the big news about it is that Andrew Hot Priest Scott plays each and every single character in it. Mm. And I'll be over at the Troubadour Wembley Park Theatre with Joseph Fiennes. Yes, he who is playing Gareth Southgate to talk about the West End transfer of Dear England. I think if he wins some silverware next year and if we're still running or that he might come and see a show, I think he should allow himself to be celebrated. You can see Dear England at the Prince Edward Theatre from this October. Hello, welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre podcast. I'm kind of interested in this announcement that's just come out today uh, on the day that we're recording about Steve Coogan coming back to the London stage. I don't think I've ever seen him. I've never seen him on the stage. I don't think he's ever been in a straight play. He's obviously done character stuff, you know, for his his comedy tours and stuff, but I I don't think he's ever done a straight role on the stage. Yeah, and he's doing Doctor Strangelove, which is sort of fascinating. The Kubrick... uh, Classic, starring mm. Peter Sellers, obviously a, a comic idol of um, Coogan's. Now, I assume he's playing the same role. They say he's playing multiple roles in this, so, so I think it's safe to assume that, yes, he will be doing those sort of three or four mm. parts that uh, mm. that Sellers played in the original. That feels quite weird for a stage play, though, doesn't it? Are any of those people on stage at the same time? Don't think... Uh, are any of them on the phone to one another? I can't <laughs> remember. I think, I'm sure there are ways of getting around it. I'm sure they'll, they'll, have, they'll have sort of factored that in. This is adapted by Armando Iannucci as well, oh, we yeah, should say, okay. who is no slacker when it comes to, you know, fairly complicated yeah. scripts and uh, yeah. uh, you know obviously and they, the two of them go way back and it's directed by Sean Foley who is very uh, au fait with comedy in the West End so mm. it, yeah. it has the right ingredients um, and farce as well so it feels yes. like it's going to have quite that sort of slightly slapstick mm. vibe yeah. possibly it will be interesting though as well because I mean the, the visuals of the film are so stark and mm. so impressive yeah. they've got those incredible Ken Adams sets you know who built all the original mm. Bond sets the as well, war the room we'll the war room stage, which yeah. supposedly Ronald Reagan was disappointed to find was not in the White House <laughs> when he became president <laughs> where's the war room guys where's the war room <laughs> but yeah we'll see how they do that we'll see how they do all the um, the big visuals and not to I mean not to put too much of a spoiler on it mm. but the, the end of Doctor Strange yes. Love is pretty you know know, sort of um, iconic, isn't it? It's going to be quite hard to recreate that. What am I saying? Yes, Yes. (laughs) bombastic indeed, yes. Well, um, in episode two of Unlikely Theatre News (laughs) this week, Philip K. Dick's Minority Mm. Report coming to the stage, Mm. boggling enough as it is, but adapted by David Haig, um, who uh, is is primarily, I think people would know as an actor. I've met him a couple of times. We've got friends in common. He's the nicest man in the world. But you'd sort of cast him as vicars or as Second World War officers, indeed. Right, right, right. And he he, he started his writing career by uh, writing a play, casting himself as Rudyard Kipling, Mm. 
and the effect on Kipling's patriotism of losing his son in the First World War. It's yeah. called My Boy Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. It was, very, it was a really yeah, sort of solid, really you know, touching. well-made play. He wrote one about weather conditions during the Second World War I as well. Oh, I enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah. Which I didn't see, unfortunately, uh, which I, was very embarrassing when I did David it. Hmm? I assumed it was another David Haig. <laughs> no, no, like, yeah, as this in, is Bernard from Four Weddings and a Funeral. It's Bernard from Four Weddings and a Funeral, yes, yes. And from Killing Eve, you know, people may know him from. Is adapting Philip Minority Report, which was seen on screen in 2002 starring Tom Cruise I know but I mean I didn't even know it was a I, didn't, I admit I didn't know it was a short story by Philip K. Dick I mm. thought it was just like the film you know I, n- yeah. I had no mm. idea that was where it came from so when you realise it's going back to the original short story it's a little bit less unlikely yeah. yes. <laughs> but it is still quite like oh okay it's, it's a multiple co-production it's coming to the Lyric Hammersmith which as mm. we've said previously on the podcast has improbably become this sort of crucible of experimental drama yeah. and weird SH asterisk T stuff you just wouldn't expect. I mean, yeah, they, yeah. they've actually got a bit of a track record for doing sci-fi here now because they did Solaris uh, mm. back at the beginning of Rachel O'Riordan's tenure mm. there, which which I absolutely loved. Which I and this is promising to use cutting-edge technology. So mm. uh, I don't know what form That's that either, will that, take. That, that goes basically one of two ways. Yeah, well, it does. But uh, <laughs> yes, quite. <laughs> it says it wants to create a world on the the borders of the science fiction and reality. So you know, who knows cool. what, which we'll direction it's going to be? Yeah, knock yourself Can't out. <laughs> we'll see how yeah. that goes. Oh, the only thing I was going to say was, we'll be interesting to see if it brings a new audience into the theatre because mm. as as you may or may not know Philip K. Dick fans glory in the name of dickheads oh do they <laughs> yes that's rather so nice so we'll see if there's a theatre full of dickheads on, <laughs> on press night for uh, not for <laughs> my um, heads, indeed not on a press sorry, night certainly The other thing this week, you noticed some rather brilliant pictures that came out. Yes, some pictures doing the rounds. Um, Sunset Boulevard, and noticed star Nicole Scherzinger covered in blood. Yeah, which I think the none of us were call, expecting. Yeah, the people have been call, snapping yeah. it with their phones. For the end of Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. For the end of Sunset yes. Boulevard. People have been snapping it with their phones. It's now got on so got online, and she's absolutely she's like basically Desmond. covered in blood from the mouth down. Yeah, I mean, I have seen the film. I haven't seen it on stage before, but I assume that fake blood is not. Glenn Close uh, was not used. covered in yeah. fake blood when <laughs> yeah. she did it in, uh, when I saw it last in London. So, no. You know what? I can't wait to see it. Well, I exactly. Really can't wait to see it. What's she using? An Uzi? I mean, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> or is she a vampire? Who yeah, knows? No. I mean, you see sort of behind her as well this bank of sort of very bright lights, mm. which is something that uh, Jamie Lloyd, the director, is using quite a lot these days. Mm. You know, he used it in The Effect at the National recently. Mm. He brilliantly reinvented Evita at the Open Air Theatre. So, I'm, I mean, I'm really excited to see this. And also, Jamie Lloyd's no stranger to fake blood. I seem to remember, is it Macbeth? With yes. James McAvoy, where there was blood raining from the ceiling. Yeah, Sunset Boulevard's quite a grim view of a kind of faded female star. I'm really interested to see how Jamie Lloyd is going to make it stand up now. Mm. I mean, he's done quite a lot to sort of increase the agency of his female character. Like, I'm thinking particularly of Roxanne, actually, in Cyrano. Yeah. So I'm just quite curious. You forget, it's, it's kind of meant to... It's a, it's, a, it's a comedy film noir, Sunset Boulevard. So... I, I sort of hope that will come out. I can't. I can't wait. I cannot wait. I can't I'm wait. So excited. <laughs> and just to just sort of start the clock going, this will be the last eligible production opening in London for this year's Evening Standard Theatre Awards, Ooh. which are coming in November. Oh. So the the eligibility cutoff period is the night that this opens. This will be the last show that we oh. that I and the other judges look at Gosh. before oh, we brilliant. make our decisions. Oh, Not to excited. make Nicole nervous here, <laughs> if you're listening. Yeah, <laughs> she'll be fine. <laughs> right. Let's get into our first review, and in fact, our only review. But more on that later. Uh, this week it's Vanya at the Duke of York's. Yeah, do we say Vanya or do we say Vanya? <laughs> I think we say Vanya. Well, I say Vanya. You say yeah, Vanya. Yeah, I do. Against I do. One here. I'm I think on stage man. here they say Vanya as well, so fair enough. Yeah. All right, I'll abide with the majority decision. 
I haven't seen this one, Nancy and Nick, you have. This is the new adaptation by Simon Stevens, and it's quite a quirky one. So tell me about it. Yeah, so it's Andrew Scott being everyone. <laughs> Basically, it's that's cost, it. It's cost of living. You know? yeah, yeah, as we, exactly. As we said, nobody can afford, uh, you know, a full cast anymore. So we've we've got Sarah Snoop going to do a one-woman show. We've had Eddie Izzard doing a one-person yeah. show. Andrew Scott here. Numerous others, I'm sure, will be coming down the pipeline to us. But this one is remarkably different. Sorry, I interrupted you. Nancy. No, you, you didn't. Go, you no, go it's not at all. I saw it Saturday night um, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, to be honest, I could watch Andrew Scott pot around a kitchen in a silk shirt for days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is a very positive viewing experience. You and many in many ways, okay. It's very, very easy to admire. But let's, I mean, let's talk about the, the adaptation, first of all, like the setting. Yeah. It's been shifted from the garden of a Russian country estate to the kitchen, mostly, of an Irish farm. Yeah. I think that works really well, don't you? Yes, I do. I think it works extremely well. I think there's a certain sort of kinship, certainly, perhaps, to... If we can get get this deep this early on between the Russian soul and the Irish soul, I don't know. And, yeah, uh, maybe. It does seem to sit very neatly in that space. I also I, think that sort of slightly isolated ruralist, you know, rural setting, Irish rural setting, works incredibly well with that kind of stultifying bubble that Chekhov's characters often make for themselves. Absolutely. You know, sort of yearning for the excitement and freedom of the city uh, from somewhere that they, I mean, they literally, they could just get on a cart and go, but they never do. Yeah. And you see that a lot, I think, in Irish drama. And there's always someone who drinks too much. Yes. And there's someone who drinks too much in this one, you know. So it's 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 a really good idea. I think it's almost seamless. Yeah, and it's it's sort of it's it's set in a weirdly sort of non-specific time, isn't it? As yeah. Well, I couldn't place it in the 20th century. The the major change they've made is that Alexandra Vanya or Vanya's brother-in-law is a filmmaker in yes. this rather than a writer, yeah. as he is in the original. So we're obviously somewhere into the uh, stage of the development of film where he considers himself to be an auteur or yes. a man of film. Yes, so exactly. we're somewhere in the 20th century where there's nothing politically or socially to particularly What's he called himself at one time? A man of stories or yes. something like that? Yes, so really, yes, like yes. The most fantastically pompous. Yeah. I mean, I went into this with a certain amount of trepidation, I think, having seen the, we don't want to go into bashing it too much, but the Izzard Great Expectations, which I think none of us liked all that much. Nope. Um, I thought that you know this could look very much like a gimmick. It could look very much like a vanity project, um, a sort of self-conscious showing off of actually virtuosity. And I was really not just pleasantly surprised, but delighted. I absolutely thought this was amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I've got one particular reservation about it, but I think there's a lot of really good stuff to say about it. I think it's very funny in places. Yeah. And there are a few knowing moments when, you know, like when new characters like the dog (laughs) kind of appear randomly or someone called Elizabeth. I don't even know who she is. He just sort of goes, oh, Elizabeth, I didn't see you there. Or like, where have you been all this time to the dog? And it's very funny. I completely forgot about you. Yeah, exactly. There's this very funny sort of, there's this contract with the audience, which includes these moments. It's very warm and it's kind of conspiratorial, which is, I think, perfectly suited to Andrew Scott's style of acting. And it is a bravura performance and a bravura piece of adaptation like every transition between the characters is a marvel i think of acting and direction just how he becomes somebody else just like even when he's not yet speaking when he plays helena his hand immediately goes to the little uh Connor in a normal people chain that he's wearing around his neck. So there are these little physical changes, but then also changes of voice, which he does just without the tiniest of slips. And I think of direction as well. You'll know someone's coming through the door, but he'll walk around and he'll... And greet himself. It works works amazingly well. I think Sam Yates is an incredibly talented director. And this feels quite a lot like a meeting of minds, you know, a bit like in the way that Jamie Lloyd and, um, say, James McAvoy was. You know, they've worked together a few times. Cyrano's particularly was the kind of 
uh, epitome. Yeah, of that, sort of apotheosis of that one, wasn't it? If someone hasn't seen Uncle Vanya, will they know what's going well, on? Well, which I haven't. Well, uh, I've actually right. never seen Uncle okay. Vanya. Uh, okay. So obviously, I then read about it afterwards, mm. but I didn't. Well, I was like, oh shit, haven't seen it. Mm. Whoops. I, th- I kind of thought I had, and then it started, and I was like, oh no, it's the other one. <laughs> one of the My other guest ones. said, I haven't seen much Chekhov apart from a month in the country, and I had to say to her, well, that's Turgenev. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, I was, oh, okay, I haven't seen it. So yeah. I, no, you do. You do find yourself wondering all the way through and possibly recognising when you have seen it where it is in the in the original narrative, if you know it, I guess. I, th- I, think, I think a pre-knowledge of it would be useful, mm-hmm. extremely. My guest reckons she got about 50% of the story. She didn't oh, mind because she was happy watching... Uh, well, she yeah, was just probably watching just Andrew Scott. Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, not really caring. You know. She's but I didn't. One. I mean, like I said, I, didn't, I don't feel like I missed any of it. Mm. But then I was listening very hard. Yeah, yeah. But I agree with you about the meeting of minds and it's interesting that Scott Stevens, who he's worked with before and mm. has had pieces written for him by oh, he Stevens did see before. Wa- he did Seawall, yes. which is one of the um, first thing I ever saw him do and basically dissolved me. And Sam Yates and Rosanna Vise, the, uh, the designer, are all credited as co-creators on this. You know, oh, all four of them are given equal billing as, oh. as sort of, you know, actor and co-creator, writer mm. and co-creator. So I think it is definitely a meeting of minds. I think um, Simon Stevens understands Andrew Scott's rhythm and his acting as well. I think Andrew Scott is uniquely possibly amongst leading actors today with a huge popular following in being prepared to throw himself headlong into quite experimental stuff. Mm. You know, the, the Hamlet he did was with Robert Icke, you know, another one of the great mm. um, experimental directors around. Yeah, I think, you know, he's, he's prepared to throw himself wholeheartedly into, into quite challenging prospects. And um, I want to ask you what your main reservation about it is, because I found not only is he very funny and very well delineates each separate character, I didn't get the usual sense of acute but clenching embarrassment I get when men play women on stage that I got to a certain extent all the way through uh, the Lehman trilogy. I actually really loved the subtle way he played the women in this and and actors of different ages um, and different sort of from different economic brackets and different levels of intelligence. No, I thought that worked really well. I don't yeah. think I don't have a I don't have the, the, the slightest issue. I thought this yeah. was quite sexy. The one the one sort of romantic I, scene. I've got to say, oh, actually, now you've reminded me. I have two reservations. Like, one <laughs> of which is that the sexy bits do not work for me. Like that, I absolutely was. I was like. I would say I was sort of like an inch less wide because of how much I was clutching myself. Just, just I found those moments, those it's, two moments. That is quite a big ask, isn't it? To, to, to tear your own shirt off and ravish yourself. I yeah, mean, it's a it sort was of, very- Definition of a certain kind of, you know, <laughs> the indulgence on turning around with the two arms. It's around. a little yeah, bit. Not it's quite a little, like that, but it's a little bit like that. You were like, "Is he gonna do that?" Yeah. You know, it's just like, and so I couldn't. I thought it did work. It did work for me. I have yeah, to say. it's partly related to the one reservation I have about it, which is that you never ever forget you're watching a performance. Yeah. You never, ever are, tra- you're not transported. And we talked about this before when we reviewed the Eddie, when we reviewed the Eddie Izzard, but this kind of thing only works if you have a virtuosic actor, yeah. right? This is a virtuosic actor because what I hadn't articulated to myself at the time when we did discuss it last time is that it then only works at all as a showpiece. That you are sitting there admiring it immensely, but you never lose yourself in the story because every single time he does a transition or whatever it is you just go oh god that was good 
I mean, Andrew Scott is a mesmerising performer. Yeah. Like, he holds the audience in the palm of his hand from the second he walks on stage. You know, he comes on, he switches on the light, he looks it up at you, he switches yeah. it off, switches it on again. It's very, and everybody, you know, you're immediately. There's an immediate complicity in there, exactly, isn't there, that he you've establishes. Signed that contract. Very, very deftly and cleverly. It's brilliant. And he yeah. is, without doubt, one of the most charismatic actors in Britain, I think. Yeah. Um, it kind of reminded me. Of Sheridan Smith, in a way. You know, when we talked about Shirley Valentine. Yeah, that rapport. Creaky old thing, Shirley Valentine, and mm. she sold it at a premium. You know, the audience was worshipping at her altar, regardless of the fact that the show itself is not mm. great. Yeah. She's got that ability to immediately make you her best friend. Yeah. And he has that same thing. It was a pleasure to watch her. Audiences adored her. It was a pleasure to watch him. And this is worth seeing for all of those reasons, I think. It is extremely clever. It is extremely entertaining. But it is easier to admire than to completely fall in love I with. disagree. And I, I disagree. I'm completely in love with Andrew Scott. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I, no, I, do, I do disagree. Because I think, I think a lot of all the sort of pathos of the original is sort of intact there, I believe, in all the emotions of it. I sort of fell in love with it as a virtuosic performance. Yeah, you know, yeah. Okay, because it's sort of the magic of acting. Somebody somebody said to me, why bother adapting Vanya? Or Vanya? And I said, well, well, you know, why bother turning Romeo and Juliet into a musical? I think yeah. this becomes its own thing. You no, stop absolutely. thinking of it as a sort of adaptation true. of it becomes a, you know, very, very definitely its own uh, artifact. And mm. it's it's fascinating for that. But um, what you don't get is that transportation. Um, you, know, you don't sort of sit there and go, I, well, at least I didn't, I felt I didn't. I mean, I cry at everything. Like, I, you know, like loads of things. And I didn't find that this got me to that point. <laughs> Getting my copy each morning. It's <laughs> 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 copy as in reviews, not reviews. <laughs> 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 but yeah, um, but I did, I did love it. Like I said, I really. I was, I was I more moved really by this than I have it. been by some full productions of Uncle Vanya in the past. Uh, okay. I mean, I do think the best ones I've seen have been amongst the finest things that I've seen. I saw Ian McKellen and Auntie Sher do Vanya and Astrov uh, right. with Janet McTeer as Yelena some years back. There was I mean, one just yeah. before lockdown as well, wasn't it, with Toby Jones? That's right. Which yeah. got very good reviews. And Richard Armitage and yeah. uh, yes, but I think this one absolutely has you know earns its right amongst the, the oh, pantheon yeah. of Vanyas. I mean, it is brilliant. Yeah. Just it's on for a very short period of time for a West End play with a star as well. well it's, it's probably only going to New York. It's 21st October. It guess. probably is going to New York. And it will do think. incredibly well there. Yeah. And yeah. I hope make an absolute shit ton of money. Mm. Yeah. Let's hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Good. But don't keep Andrew Scott too long. No. no exactly. We want him back here. He's yes, ours. Yeah. <laughs> right. Time for a quick break. Coming up, I'll be over at the Troubadour Wembley Park Theatre with Joseph Fiennes. Make sure to hit follow on this podcast so you never miss an episode. We are a part of that collection of two white men doing podcasts. We're two queer white men. Does that differentiate us at all? We're talking about musicals. Yeah, we're talking about musical theatre. <laughs> I'm Peter. And I'm Nathan. And yes, musical theater has gospel. And dancing boys. And fancy hats. So join us for the gospel of musical theater wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Marisha Wallace, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theater Podcast. 
I'm here at Wembley Park Theatre in the shadow of the arches of Wembley Stadium where the rehearsals for Dear England are taking place and I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Joseph Fiennes. Welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be here. I should just mention that I've got my two furry friends with me, my two dogs. So if anyone can hear paws walking around in the background, that's because I've got my two mascots with me. It's great to have an audience for the the recording. So uh, Joseph, this play opened at the National earlier this year to great acclaim, packed out houses and now is transferring to the West End. Could you just open the world out of Dear England. What is it? What is it about? Well, Dear England uh, surrounds the moment when Gareth Southgate took over um, as manager. Well, really, he was caretaker manager and brought in with him a psychologist, Pippa Grange, and probably revamped quietly the, the system there, having come from probably quite a toxic background of sports back in his day. His approach was completely different. Well, he was the focus of a nation's ire when he missed the penalty, essentially. So he knows what it's like. Well, that, uh, brilliantly, brilliantly put. And therein lies the drama of the piece, is that Gareth, having lost um, with England, uh, missing the penalty in 96, and all the baggage and trauma that came with that, takes on one of the most impossible jobs in England, which is to manage the team. And, you know, you would ask, why would anyone put themselves through that, having gone through 96? And it's an extraordinary transformation. I have to say, I saw it at the National. Has the man himself seen it? Have you communicated with him? God, I I would love him to see it. Um, He's become, through this play, a real hero for me. Mm. And initially, I was invited, along with James Graham, our writer, to, to visit Gareth at St George's. Um, And a few hours before catching the train, I I was sadly bumped for some reason. I think it might be to do with the shyness of the man. Possibly I'm putting it down to that. Not Mm. that he just hates me and is (laughs) disappointed with the casting. But um, I hear he's a wonderful gentleman. And well, you see the way he conducts himself, as I see for hours and hours on Sky Sports news interviews, because that's all I'm left to study. So, yeah, I mean, what's been remarkable is that beyond Gareth and the, the sort of English game is the way that audiences have responded. Um, because I wouldn't say it's an uplifting drama to talk about losses. Mm. So there's something beyond the game, which I find fascinating, that audiences celebrate. Um, and weirdly, it's about how we lose, which is possibly very much a part of our English psyche. And um, it's lovely seeing the audience come together on on the sort of a deeper theme beyond winning. Yeah, well, it's an extraordinary moment seeing, well, for me, a, a national auditorium on their feet singing Sweet Caroline. Well, uh, at the age of 17, 18, for four years, I was a dresser at the national. So I know those corridors of old, picking up underpants and socks and washing them and having them delivered to the actor that I was dressing. And I certainly remember the audiences of that day, and they're very different to the audiences of today. And going out on that stage recently, was so uplifting and wonderful because the demographic was not a national audience that I remembered in the late 80s or 90s, but this was a fresh new demographic, all ages, possibly people that had never come to the theatre were in the theatre and possibly those who never go to football matches are now going to football matches. So it's uh, it's been a real celebration and, and as you say, to see everyone at the end of the show up on their feet singing along together in unison it's kind of bonkers mad and you know i'm full of elation when i come off and see that but one of the great things about your performance is well it's brilliant how you you embody the man through your acting but actually there's a bit of physical transformation am i right in thinking that you've 
Needed some new teeth for the transfer. You let, here. The, you let the secret out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, not that anyone beyond sort of like uh, four rows from the front would see, but it, it, it's really for me and for those on stage with me. And possibly theatre has that wonderful thing where you kind of enter into the conceit and um, and you buy into it with with sort of these signals and they don't it doesn't have to be hugely spot on in terms of makeup and prosthetics like it would in film mm. but there's that wonderful sense where the audience you just want them to settle to say oh that's Harry Kane oh that's Gareth and then we get into the deeper themes but yes I do do a little bit of uh, makeup and there is a, a pair of teeth because my teeth are so small and Gareth's are so wonderfully big and so I thought I would grab that and also it, it it changes the way I speak and the tone that I speak in, which is very helpful. Um, but beyond the teeth and the waistcoat, what I love is that, that Gareth, and like all of us in life, we get these moments which I could only describe as sort of critical junctures in our life. And 96 for Gareth must have been one. And it's how you kind of turn left or right and deal with that great loss and sorrow and hardship and trauma which I think is, for me, at the heart of the piece. So this wonderful sort of tectonic plate of emotion emerges and, and it haunts him all the way through. This is James Graham's, or my interpretation of James Graham's Gareth Southgate. I'm not saying that is Gareth Southgate. Sure. But for me, therein lies the, the drama of the character beyond the outward. The outward certainly helps, but I love working from the emotionality as well within and... and how that carries through and kind of reveals itself in the play that actually he's intent on winning, even within the Reformation and the beautiful thing that's happening. He still wants that win. He still wants that silverware. Of course. I read in a, a fantastic quote from James Graham talking about the Shakespearean nature of his Gareth Southgate. As someone who has played Shakespeare in Shakespeare in Love, um, I wondered if you saw the parallels as well. well. I certainly thought when I got an offer from the National that it might be a Shakespeare coming my way or a Chekhov or an Ibsen and I was quite excited, <laughs> you know, to get me back on the stage and then it was Gareth Southgate and I thought, my God. Um, but when I read the play, actually the emotionality kind of caught me out, which I, I was very surprised by. But it is classic but it's classic in the sense of an unlikely hero and there's a little bit of the underdog which we all love and can kind of identify with but it there is a, a, the classic search for the holy grail that actually you know that journey takes you to a place where you might recognize it's not about the silverware it's not about the cup it's something else that you learn it's about the struggle and through that struggle you learn that that role in your life is something that you can impart and helping someone else with that in mind it is a classic and there is a moment of catharsis which again is for a particular player and harry kane but also for the whole nation i think as well and is that what you're trying to sort of bring along i think so i mean i, I don't know what am i trying to bring along i guess mm. one fulfills the objective and then it's over to the audience to sort of align themselves with that narrative but i think there is something that in in loss and how you how you win deep. Um, you don't win by putting the fear of God in people because if you do that, they play with fear and fear cripples you and then you are without um, joy. And if you're without joy in your work, whether it's us talking together or on the stage or whether it's footballers, you cannot create. And so 
so fear robs you of of creation because it, it you're not playing with joy and i i love that as a uh, something to take away and that actually all of our struggles are really vital and important because you might find there is someone else further down the line who needs that kind of compassion and understanding and if you've been through that process if you've lost the penalty on a world stage then who better to sort of give that other person a hug and talk to about so i think those are the bigger themes which permeate for me in a really special way absolutely and do you have a club team is it something you've enjoyed for a long time uh i i I love playing it i'm rather like the jack russell that's sleeping next to me you throw the ball i'll run um (laughs) and i love sports and i love football i love the national game Um, I do support uh, a team, Chelsea, uh, moving swiftly on. No, no. Um, well, at the moment, not great, but I'm with you on that. Not great. <laughs> I think for a, a number of years, probably. Um, I love the big occasions and rather like the play, uh, the way that people uh, and countries can come together and see the beautiful game in a sort of epic sense. I, I love the scale of that and as, as very much the World Cup. And there were a couple of footballers in the night that I saw it. I don't know, have the team seen it have you um i know um that lee dixon came in to talk to us and that was very helpful and and a fellow arsenal player alongside him in his day tony adams and ian wright and gary lineker they've all been in and they've they've loved it there's been nothing but praise um from what i hear i haven't met apart from lee dixon any of them are you hoping that gareth will come to the west end I think if he wins some silverware next year and if we're still running or that he might come and see a show, I think he should allow himself to be celebrated. <laughs> and uh, my last question really, it's um, been a long time since you've been in the West End. I think it was a year ago. What does it feel like being back on stage, back in the West End? It's wonderful to be back. It's great that we can take this this uh, play to the West End. And as you said earlier, we had it at the National and the, the audience represented the nation. And I very much hope that that continues at the West End and those who couldn't get to see it, get to see it again now. And the tickets are at a great price. So it's affordable. It's not elitist, which is really important. It's so important to stress that this is this is a play for people who've never gone to the theatre. Um, uh, and what, what better play to see first time round if you've never come to the theatre. For me, I remember, I think I did A View from the Bridge in the West End. My first job out of drama school was The Woman in Black, a sort of gothic horror story. It was eight shows a week, two people on stage. It was a baptism by fire. Um, It was exhausting. So in my DNA, I'm reminded it's eight shows a week. It's relentless. Um, It's fun and wonderful. But it's the Olympics for the actor. I really do think that. I think that it or really tests you. World Cup you. final. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's my World Cup final, exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. Joseph Fines, thank you so much for joining us on the Evening Standard Theatre podcast. Thank you so much. Right, let's go to the ads. In the meantime, why not give us a follow? We'll see you back here in just a sec. We are a part of that collection of two white men doing podcasts. We're two queer white men. Does that differentiate us at all? Does it? It totally helps with the topic. We're talking Talking about about musicals. Yeah, we're talking about musical theater. (laughs) I'm Peter. And I'm Nathan. And yes, musical theater has gospel. And dancing boys. And fancy hats. So join us for the gospel of musical theater wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
I'm Caitlin Fitzgerald, and you are listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome back. Right. We were going to review Death of England closing time, but we can't because <laughs> I was, it was supposed to open last night, having been delayed once due to cast illness. And at about 5.30 last night, uh, all the critics and I gather the writers were sent an email told it's not happening tonight. So we weren't able to get into it before yeah. recording the podcast. Um, such a shame. And uh, I mean, this trilogy, or should we say quadrilogy, has yes. really had some bad luck. They really have. I mean, if we think back to how it started, uh, the first was one person show featuring race ball as this sort of white son of a racist whose best friend is black um, and who is dating the white guy's sister. And that was cut short by the first COVID lockdown. The second part of it, which was about Delroy, the black character, was due to open, reopen the Olivier Theatre. You yeah. know, that was put off because Giles Torreira, who was supposed to play Delroy, was ill. So his uh, his understudy, Michael Balogun, had to go on, which made Michael Balogun's career. But because it was delayed, it both opened and closed the Olivier on the same night. It played for one performance before, I think it was then, I think it was brought back again briefly after it that. Was, it yeah, was, yeah. That's when I saw it, was when it came back. Then there was, the, I think under lockdown, they did a quick sort of supplementary script, bringing both the two male characters together. But... Since this project started workshopping at the National Theatre Studio uh, with Roy Williams and Clint Dyer working as co-writers and Clint as director, they've had uh, Delroy's mother as the main character, but she's never appeared on stage yet. So that was the character Joe Martin is playing in Death of England Closing Time. Hayley Squires is playing Carly, uh, Delroy's girlfriend. Yeah, and uh, the Ray Fiennes character's sister. Ray Spall character's sister. Ray Spall. Yes. Ray Spall character, sorry. Uh, that's fine. And um, yeah, but we we wait to see. I mean, uh, there was good stuff on, on Twitter before it opened from yeah. people seeing it in previews. Yeah, it was really Just, disappointing. You know, I was really looking forward to seeing it last night. It's such a shame. I mean, it's it's a sort of um, pyrrhic sort of pleasure, but I think somehow in some ways this is going to ensure this production's place in sort of history of theatre mm. just because no show or no no complete sort of work of art has had such sort of setbacks to it, I think. No, you know, it's true. On quite so many sort of different levels. They've been incendiary. You know, they're not mm. they're not mediocre. They're bloody good, yeah. these things. Mm. They've all been really brilliant, I yeah. think. And I'm, I mean, I am really looking forward to it. Even though it starts at 8 o'clock and it's 2 hours 40 minutes, and I'm sorry. <laughs> Why? Why 8 o'clock? Why? Why? Why National Theatre? They still have to stagger, don't they, at the National between the opening? O'clock. Yes, I know. <laughs> but they've got three shows to open every single night, you know, so yeah, I think they have to... Right. Which, probably, which um, uh, auditorium is this one in? It's back in the Dorfman, Dorfman which is where yeah. they started. The so. Yeah, so it doesn't matter, does it? Because it's around the corner. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm absolutely livid about it. <laughs> but I will still go and see it because it will be brilliant. And yeah. Joe Martin and Hayley Squires and you know, this series and I think it will be really, uh, yeah, I'm, I am I am excited to see it. I mean, it. and it's like you know, an understudy going on, you know, when uh, production suffers like this before it's even opened, I think the audience will be with it even more when it does open, yeah. so there is that. I agree. Huge amount of goodwill. Yeah. And yeah. there's a huge amount of significance. I spoke to, under lockdown I spoke to Roy Williams, one of the co-writers um, who was sort of saying he couldn't wait, being a sort of black playwright being given the Olivier to mm. exclusively tell the story of a black character mm. in the middle of lockdown, you know, when all the theatres had been closed that was a hugely significant act mm. yeah. I spoke to him and Clint about this production and you can find that interview on standard.co.uk if you're mm. interested and they were talking about the significance of, of, of what, what, what this play means really you know to them and mm. to the wider black audience or, or you know sort of to audiences generally um, so yeah when it does finally open we will look forward to covering it I tell you what though that's something that um, we've now all seen I went to see Pygmalion um, yeah what did last you think night. yeah no 
No. <laughs> you're more on yeah, uh, Nick's your, your, yeah, yeah, side, not my side. side. I don't. I didn't. I didn't like it. <laughs> I, I thought it was. I mean, it was far too long. But also, I just. I really, really didn't like the direction. I found it really, like. I realised that the freneticness of it is deliberate, but it doesn't work for me. It just makes it annoying. It's got this sort of continuous discordant piano music, which is just. It's just irritating. And I realise it's supposed to presumably sort of reflect her turmoil as she's being forced, you know, she's she's trying and trying and trying to learn how to be a different person. I hated the set. Oh, my God, I hated the set. I really, (laughs) really didn't get it. I thought the I thought it was ugly. There's I think as you talked about last week, there's a sort of transition from the kind of early 20th century look to a later sort of 30s kind of thing, which is done so subtly and so haphazardly that it sort of doesn't do anything. I just didn't think it worked. And, you know, as you said last week, it's got two of our finest actors in it. This um, is Patsy Ferran and Bertie Carvel. Patsy Ferran and and Bertie Carvel. And the director is uh, Richard Jones. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I don't know why they did it. I I don't see what the point was. It's got a very confusing denouement. I mean, the last thing she says is great. I really like that moment. And also, I mean, her outfit at the end, love that. Absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Fantastic pair of trousers, wonderful blouse, real revenge blouse. Absolutely great. The next day, I kind of came in wearing kind of a pair of smart trousers and a nice blouse because I was like, you know, like this is... This is this what theatre's missing, is it? The sort of shop the look? Yeah, it really. I loved it. It was so nice. The actress whose name, actually, I have... It's gone out of my head. Sylvestra. Um, the Tuzel. yes, who plays um, Henry Higgins' mother. She's brilliant. Love her. And uh, also has a fantastic blue dress, um, which is what I said to my friend when she came on in it, because by that stage I had completely lost interest in the actual play. It is um, interesting, the question of what lured Patsy Ferran to it. You know, I can see the, the allure of the character of Higgins for Bertie Carvel. As we said last week, it's a, another chance for him to do an incredible sort of physical transformation. But... Patsy Ferran riding so high on the reputation of Streetcar Named Desire earlier this year. It's a weird choice. I, I said in, when I was writing about it that I wasn't sure why it had been revived. And I don't understand really what the payoff was for her unless it was just a step back into a piece of almost pure comedy. But there's just all this charging backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards across the stage. I don't know. It just did not hang together for me at all. I'm didn't... disappointed. I liked watching her. I liked watching him. Colonel Pickering was exactly what he needed to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a whole, though, I mean, we got to the end and my friend and I were both like, oh, God, you know, we, it was really one of those kind of it, and it was again, it was one of those ones where she puts her head on my shoulder. I put my head on her head. We've kind of lost, you know, we've lost the will to live at a certain point in the second half. But the tea party is the first moment that Patsy Ferran, one of our greatest stage actresses, gets to shine. Hmm. Yeah. And that's really far in. I don't True. know. Anyway, anyway, it's, it's got people in it that I really like, but... Yeah, I didn't like it. Okay. <laughs> well, on that note, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on that cheery note. Sorry about that. That's okay. Well, I think that's it for this week's Evening Standard Theatre podcast, <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> Check out all our other episodes below, which include interviews with Sir Ian McKellen and Roger Allen, Jenna Coleman, Millie Alcock, Tim Minchin, and many, many more. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Thanks very much to our producer, Rachel. As ever, we'll see you next Sunday. A few days after recording the podcast, news broke of the death of the extraordinary stage and screen actor, Sir Michael Gambon. You can hear a special episode of the Evening Standards Leader podcast where we celebrate his life and career. We'll leave a link in the show notes.